J.C. Ryle's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke Section 62 Further Instructions of Christ to the Disciples Luke chapter 10, verses 8 through 16 And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. These verses comprise the second part of our Lord Jesus Christ's charge to the seventy disciples. Its lessons, like those of the first part, have a special reference to ministers and teachers of the gospel. But they contain truths which deserve the serious attention of all members of the Church of Christ. The first point we should notice in these verses is the simplicity of the tidings which our Lord commanded some of his first messengers to proclaim we read that they were commissioned to say, The kingdom of God is near you. These words we should probably regard as the keynote to all that the seventy disciples said. We can hardly suppose that they said nothing else but this single sentence. The words no doubt implied far more to a Jewish hearer at the time when they were spoken than they convey to our minds at the present day. To a well-instructed Israelite, they would sound like an announcement that the times of Messiah had come, that the long-promised Saviour was about to be revealed, that the desire of all nations was about to appear. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. All this is unquestionably true. Such an announcement, suddenly made by seventy men, evidently convinced of the truth of what they said, travelling over a thickly peopled country, could hardly fail to draw attention and excite inquiry. But still, the message is particularly and strikingly simple. It may be doubted whether the modern way of teaching Christianity, as a general rule, is sufficiently simple. It is a certain fact that deep reasoning and elaborate arguments are not the weapons by which God is generally pleased to convert souls. Simple, plain statements, boldly and solemnly made, and made in such a manner that they are evidently felt and believed by him who makes them, seems to have the most effect on hearts and consciences. 
parents and teachers of the young, ministers and missionaries, scripture readers and district visitors, would do well to remember this. We need not be so anxious as we often are about fencing and proving and demonstrating and reasoning out the doctrines of the gospel. Not one soul in a hundred was ever brought to Christ in this fashion. We need more simple, plain, solemn, earnest, affectionate statements of simple gospel truths. We may safely leave such statements to work and take care of themselves. They are arrows from God's own quiver and will often pierce hearts which have not been touched by the most eloquent sermon. The second point we should notice in these verses is the great sinfulness of those who reject the offers of Christ's gospel. Our Lord declares that it shall be more tolerable at the last day for Sodom than for those who do not receive the message of his disciples. And he proceeds to say that the guilt of Chorazin and Bethsaida, cities in Galilee, where he had often preached and worked miracles, but where the people had nevertheless not repented, was greater than the guilt of Tyre and Sidon. Declarations like these are particularly solemn. They throw light on some truths which men are very apt to forget. They teach us that all will be judged according to their spiritual light, and that from those who have enjoyed most religious privileges, most will be required. They teach us the exceeding hardness and unbelief of the human heart. It was possible to hear Christ preach and to see Christ's miracles, and yet to remain unconverted. Most importantly, they teach us that man is responsible for the state of his own soul. Those who reject the gospel and remain impenitent and unbelieving are not merely objects of pity and compassion, but deeply guilty and blameworthy in God's sight. God called, but they refused. God spoke to them, but they would not regard him. The condemnation of the unbelieving will be strictly just. Their blood will be upon their own heads. The judge of all the earth will do right. Let us lay these things to heart and beware of unbelief. It is not open sin and flagrant profligacy alone which ruin souls. We've only to sit still and do nothing when the gospel is pressed on our acceptance and we shall find ourselves one day in the bottomless pit. We need not run into any excess of heinous sin. We need not openly oppose true religion. We have only to remain cold, careless, indifferent, unmoved, and unaffected. And our end will be in eternal hell. This was the ruin of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And this, it may be feared, will be the ruin of thousands, as long as the world stands. No sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as unbelief. The last point that we should notice in these verses is the honor which the Lord Jesus is pleased to put upon his faithful ministers. 
we see this brought out in the words with which he concludes his charge to the seventy disciples. He says to them, He who hears you hears me, and he who despises you despises me, and he who despises me despises him who sent me. The language used here by our Lord is very remarkable, and the more so when we remember that it was addressed to the seventy disciples and not to the twelve apostles. The lesson it is intended to convey is clear and unmistakable. It teaches us that ministers are to be regarded as Christ's messengers and ambassadors to a sinful world. So long as they do their work faithfully, they are worthy of honor and respect for their master's sake. Those who despise them are not despising them so much as their master. Those who reject the terms of salvation which they are commissioned to proclaim are doing an injury not so much to them as to their king. Let us remember these things in order that we may form a right estimate of the position of a minister of the gospel. The subject is one on which error abounds. On the one side, the minister's office is regarded with idolatrous and superstitious reverence. On the other side, it is often regarded with ignorant contempt. Both extremes are wrong. Both errors arise from forgetfulness of the plain teaching of Scripture. The minister who does not do Christ's work faithfully or deliver Christ's message correctly has no right to look for the respect of the people. But the minister who declares all the counsel of God and keeps back nothing that is profitable, is one whose words cannot be disregarded without great sin. He is on the king's business. He is a herald. He is an ambassador. He is the bearer of a flag of truce. He brings the glad tidings of terms of peace. To such a man, the words of our Lord will prove strictly applicable. The rich may trample on him, the wicked may hate him, the pleasure lover may be annoyed at him, the covetous may be vexed by him, but he may take comfort daily in his master's words, he who despises you despises me. The last day will prove that these words were not spoken in vain. <laughs>